You're listening to LCC Alumni Stories, a show dedicated to highlighting the amazing alumni of Lansing Community College. I'm Steve Robinson, president of LCC, and on each episode I have the awesome privilege of getting to know one of our many inspiring alums and hearing about their experiences at and since leaving LCC. The LCC alumni community is expansive and far-reaching. They're an incredibly diverse group of people, representative of all walks of life, working in hundreds of industries across the country. LCC Alumni Stories shines a bright light on alumni who make a positive contribution to their community and showcases those who've overcome obstacles and barriers to achieve academic and personal success. These are their dynamic stories. My guest today is Joshua who is really one of my favorite kind of alumni stories because not only did he attend Lansing Community College, but after graduating in 2019 and transferring on to university, he returned to LCC where he currently serves as a professional faculty tutor. Welcome to the show, Joshua. I'm excited to be talking to you again. Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's going to be a great conversation because you have an interesting story. You're uh, an immigrant to the United States. You learned uh, English here. And I've heard a lot about your story, and I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Tell me a little bit about your role as a professional faculty tutor before we start talking about how you got here. Um, I'm tutor at LCC. I tutor psychology, history, human nutrition, and religion. Really? Okay, that, that's a broad uh, variety of classes. So you help our students who are, are looking on study skills, preparing for exams. Tell me a little bit about what these sessions are like when you sit down with our students. Uh, usually when they, uh, when they have homework and they, don't, they are a little confused, they don't know what to do, uh, they, they are coming to the tutoring, we are talking about the homework, and uh, I read the assignment mm-hmm. and just explain to them what the assignment is. Okay, so and what's interesting about you, and we'll get to this part of the story, you're helpful to them because you went through a similar process when you came here as a student, right? Yes. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to, first of all, thank you for doing that important work with our students. That it really, it really helps with their success, and I appreciate the time you spend with our students helping them be successful in the classroom. Now, one of the things that you and I have talked about, because Joshua and I have talked before, you are an author, and you have a book coming out about your incredible story from before you moved to the United States. Tell me a little bit about the book. What's its title? The book is, uh, the title is Becoming Joshua. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I wasn't Joshua, my name was something different. Okay. And uh, I earned that name. <laughs> Tell me how you earned that name. So when I came to the LCC, I didn't know English. Right. I didn't know how to speak English and read and write. So I enrolled at LCC. I learned English, and one of the tutors who was tutoring me to learn English, uh, she heard my story, and then they adopted me. So, and then when they adopt me, they uh, they asked me if if you want to change your name, and I said absolutely, and they choose Joshua. They adopted you. Yes, officially, I have family after years. That's fantastic. Now they heard your story. And it's a compelling story, which is why they wanted you to write it down. Tell me that story. What is what story do you tell in the book Becoming Joshua? So I'm from Iran, mm-hmm. and uh, almost 
16 years ago, 17 years ago, I converted to Christianity. Okay. And uh, in Iran, is not uh, you cannot convert. I see. To the other religion. So that's technically against the law, what you did. Yes. Okay. So I converted to Christianity. We start to have house church. And then, unfortunately, the government arrested me. And I went to prison for that. And then after a few times, I had no any other choice. I went to Turkey as a refugee. I was in Turkey for two years, two and a half years. And then I came to the United States. So in the in the book, uh, you relate that story of being imprisoned for your religious beliefs, yes. right? Which I understand was very very difficult. Yeah, yeah. For our listeners, can you give a a, a bit of a understanding of what some of the hardships that you you don't have to go into deep detail, but I, I know from talking to you before that this was a incredibly traumatic experience. Yes. So prison in Iran is very different than America. Okay. Uh, I wasn't in prison in America, but <laughs> I was in Iran. So mm-hmm. in Iran, when you're in prison as a person who converted, okay, uh, they don't just put you in prison. They take your soul. How? So it's not just physically. Okay. They psychologically, they abuse you, which when they release you, you still have trauma, you know, and it takes years and years and you cannot get rid of that because it wasn't for one year or two years or three years physically being in one room. They abuse you psychologically in many different ways. Oh, no. Well, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Now, how long were you imprisoned in, in Iran? They arrested me a few times. The second time was the longest one, which means it was about 15 months. But 15 months? The second time, yeah. First, first time was three months. Second time was 15 months. And then a few other times, which overall together I was in prison in Iran for 27 months. That's awful. Yeah. I'm so sorry that happened to you. But in the book, which is coming out soon, you you describe this uh, this trauma and and how you have overcome it uh, through first becoming a refugee. Now, you first went to Turkey. Tell me a little bit about that. How did you leave Iran? How did you how did you get out of the country? And what what was it like there as a refugee? Living in Iran and going to Turkey was really hard. You know, I still remember when I left Iran, you know, I turned back for the last time I saw the mountain in Iran. Mm -hmm. And I told myself, you won't get back soon or you never. I never forget that moment. I even draw that moment uh, to remember, which I can't even forget. So when I went to Turkey, I enrolled to United Nations as a refugee. Mm-hmm. And then the process was, uh, it was a long process. So I didn't have any money. I didn't have anything except my backpack. Wow. Wow. I want to ask you a question about leaving Iran then, because I, I, when I heard you talking, I heard two things. One is, even though terrible things had happened to you in Iran, you were very sad to leave your country, right? You looked at the mountains and you had this realization that you might not see that landscape again. 
Yeah. What was what what kind of feelings did you have as you were having that complex thought of I love where I'm from but I was treated so poorly here. Talk to me about what that was like for you. You know even you know the government treated me very well not me or many people like me. Mm-hmm. You know because it's it's a still where it, that's a place that I born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And there is a lot of people they need help spiritually. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can help them physically. We try, but spiritually, they really need need help. You know, for me, it was when I found Jesus in a darkest country, mm-hmm. and life was much better for me in that time. Even when I was in prison, when I was in pressure. Because I knew the real freedom is not the type of freedom that government give it to you. The real freedom is the freedom that you will find and you will understand what the truth is. Wow. wow. And I wanted to share that truth with anyone, you know, even the homeless, the those people who, who are poor or rich, it doesn't matter because even if you have money and you are rich. If you don't have a real freedom, which is, to me, the real freedom is knowing the truth, mm-hmm. you are still poor. Right. And speaking of being poor, you mentioned that all you had was your backpack. Yes. You're a UN refugee in Turkey. How do you get from Turkey to the United States? So UN interviewed me in a few times, mm-hmm. and then uh, they asked me which country you don't want to go. They don't ask you which country you want to go. <laughs> That's an, so they ask you where you don't want to go. Yeah. Um, wow. And, uh, so you told them which countries you didn't want to go to, and, and then what happened? And then uh, they, choose me Amer- they choose me the country America. Okay. And then after America, they sent me again email, and they told me which state, or do you know anyone? And mm-hmm. I said... I don't know anyone, and I have no clue <laughs> wow. about America. So right. they choose here, mm-hmm. Lansing, uh-huh. and I came to the Lansing. Wow. So you were part of a refugee uh, program that brought yes. you to Lansing with just your backpack. Yes. Wow. And how did you um, end up here at LCC? So when I came here, it was San Wilson Catholic Church. Okay. And then uh, in first six months, we couldn't enroll in any college because uh, I should have been resident. Got it. Mm-hmm. So they sent us to the library in Lansing in Capitol mm-hmm. to, you know, to just learn some of the basic stuff. Uh-huh, like right the, down the street. Yep, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then uh, one of the teacher in library, they brought us to the... Lansing to the LCC, mm-hmm. and then they told us we can learn English here, okay. and then if we want, we, we can continue our education. Right, and that's when you did the ESOL program here at LCC. Yes, yes. Yeah. I came to the LCC, and then I start ESOL level one. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very right basic. at the beginning. <laughs> yes, because I didn't know any English, and I had tremendous professors yes you know they they didn't just taught me english they taught me how to come back to the life because when i came i had a lot of trauma i had a lot of pain Mm -hmm. i had back pain in that time i couldn't walk very well i was using walker to coming to the uh, you were using a walker to come here yes okay 
And those professors, not only did they help you with your English, you then started taking classes. Tell me about that, transferring from ESOL to actually uh, taking four-credit classes. So after I finished the English, one of my professors in that time, Mrs. Goraita, Mm -hmm. she told me, if you want to improve your English in a better way, so let's take some classes like psychology, history, which will help you... Uh, to learn better listening, better speaking. Mm-hmm. So I took some classes, and then I thought, I love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you really, really liked the classroom. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, what were some of your favorite classes? Absolutely. Psychology classes was awesome. Mm-hmm. And I loved those professors, which they taught me psychology. And reading and writing, I still remember every second of those classes. Wow. Wow. And you've put a lot of that into practice. We'll talk about that in a minute about the book. But um, tell me a little bit about, um, you don't have to say where you're transferring, but you, uh, you, you've been very successful here as a student. You're a professional tutor, so you help other students be successful. But you're, now you're transferring to a university. What do you hope to study and what degree do you hope to earn uh, at university? My goal is graduate as a psychology student. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I want to study psychology because I really want to understand why some people torture. You want to understand what, what moves people to torture. To, torture? to torture others because of, you know, belief. Right. Or because of who they want to be. And you know, to me, that that field is very important. You know, I just want to understand human behavior better. Right. And you mm-hmm. come at this from a very specific vantage point because of your experience. Yes. There are not many people studying torture who have been through what you've been through. Yeah. I, this might be too personal a question, but when you read about things like humans mistreating other humans or or the psychology behind torture that must be so hard for you given what you're what you've been through what what's it like to study that on an academic level when you've experienced it so personally is it is it is it harder you think when you experience it definitely is not good because you are in that situation but in academic is it still it's not easy. No. I mean, do you ever have to put down what you're reading and take a break? Yes. Yeah. It's happened to me a lot. Sometimes when I, when I read some of the human behavior book and that those books is about torturing other people or why they do this, it's, it takes really more time because, you know, I have to stop many times mm-hmm. and drink water or sometimes walk and then come back and then read it again. Because it brings back traumatic memories. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So well, as you're working with your professors, and, and I know you and I have talked about your professors and with your professors, they were moved to encourage you to write your story. Tell me about that. Which professors told you you need to write this down? And, and how, did that, how did that actually start? It's all a start with Mrs. Goraita. Okay. And... She was working with me in ESL level two, level three, four, five, mm-hmm. all the way. She on. was there with you all the way. <laughs> and yes, uh-huh. yeah. And uh, I remember when I when I started to learn to write one paragraph, she mm-hmm. was with me. And then 
when I started to write the essay, I remember I wrote the essay about, you know, about my fate and mm-hmm. what's happened to me. I remember she read that essay for first time and she told me that that's the biggest story. It is a big story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I I never forget she encouraged me. She told me and I said I cannot write a lot and she told me just write essay. Yeah. You know, one by one and mm-hmm. then put it together and then you will see the result. So that's inspiring to me. I mean, we I've shared this with you. I I started my career as a writing teacher. And I'm so inspired by what you shared because you went from not understanding or speaking the language at all yeah. to being able to read and write, start with a paragraph, then an essay, and you are about to be a published author. You are publishing a book. Yeah. Are you proud of that? That is a really big <laughs> accomplishment. Yeah, that's for the person who came to the United States with not knowing any English and in six, seven years graduate and write a book, I'm really happy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I wasn't the person who finished the book. Tell me about that. Yeah. You weren't the same person. The, the, per- the same person who started the book is not the same person who finished the book. Tell yeah. me about that. Yeah. Because when I start to write the book, you know, I, I had around 300 pages. Okay. And then my mom and dad, which they adopted me, they, they are tutor here too, they found some publishers and some offers to help me to write the, to to make it better right and then because of the trauma that i had i wasn't able to have a connection with anyone or to explain to everyone like what's happened to me mm-hmm. until um, one day i took a math class at lcc mm-hmm. and the tutor who helped me about the math my math class she was the author and she wrote some books, but she never published in that time. Okay. And then we were talking about the book as well. And then I gave my book to her. She read it and she gave it back to me with 20 page question. Really? <laughs> yeah. So she came back with a lot of feedback and notes and questions. Yeah. And I told her, I think instead of asking me question in from into the paper, why you let's Let's just start it. I want you to write the book. And then we started again by spending 100 hours together talking again and writing that, that book. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, it's, and it's, uh, it's finally done and it's going to be published. Yeah. It's, That's incredible. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to see it. I want to get one of the first copies. I want to <laughs> buy one of the first copies. Thank you. In addition to your writing, Joshua, you have done a lot of drawing. Talk to me about uh, what you draw. What what do you like to draw? When I was a child, I loved to draw. Mm-hmm. And even my story started with drawing mm-hmm. because I start to draw a cross in my arm and it end up I tattooed and then I got beat <laughs> from my father because he was so mad why I tattooed cross. Wow. And then, so it's all a start with drawing. And then... I love to draw black and white. Okay, right. It's like a pen and ink drawing that, that you do. Yes. Yeah. And you're very good. You're very good. So, what, so um, what other subjects do you like to draw? I usually love to draw face. Okay. Because I, I think like when you draw the face, you pay attention to every single line in a face. Okay. And it shows me, each line shows me the story of that person. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I love to draw the face. Are are there going to be any of your drawings in the book? We have three of these drawing. They are going in, into in the book, and then we are going to have an art gallery. Oh, okay, yeah. right, right. So there would be an exhibit of your drawings. Now the yeah. ones that are in the book, uh, what what particular drawings will be in there with the story? We choose three of these drawings, and each of them represents of one part like the part one i was in iran Mm -hmm. the part two i was in turkey and the third part i was in america okay so so these are then uh illustrations that supplement or go along with what you write about uh, in the book in the book well it's such an accomplishment and the one thing i would like to say joshua is that Every time I've spoken to you about this, you've been so gracious to credit your professors and the people who have helped you, and you are repaying that to our students by helping them as a tutor. Uh, So I want to thank you for that. Also, you mentioned to me that there are other Iranians who've been through what you've gone through, and you've spent some time encouraging them to write. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? How How have you encouraged other people to make sense of what happened to them uh, through writing? So I decided to, because I couldn't encourage some of the special women who was in prison in Iran, and now I know them, Mm -hmm. to write about what's happened to them, except I'm the one who starts to write about it, to make it book, and then tell them. Okay. Because writing about pain is not easy. And... It's not just about the pain, especially those who goes through the trauma or through the present in Iran, special women. It's not easy to talk about it. Right. Because I went to prison in Iran as a man. Mm-hmm. And then it took me six years psychologically until I prepare my mind to talk about it. Right. And I cannot even imagine for women how much would be hard because even living as a woman in Iran is not easy. Okay. And imagine if you go to the prison as a woman, you go 10 times worse than men's. Really? Is that so you, you, you have learned that the experience that women had in prison was, uh, was more harsh and more Definitely. intense? Yeah. Oh, that's awful to think about. But you shared with me that some of the women you've talked to who've had similar experiences to yours are very happy that you've written your book. Yeah, they were so... I still didn't give them the book to write, to read it, because Mm -hmm. I told them, you should order and buy the book. That's right, order and buy the book. (laughs) And that's an important role of an author, right? You want people to read it, and and you have spent a lot of time writing it. So um, that's wonderful. Joshua, I really appreciate you spending some time with me on Alumni Stories. Thanks for what you do for our students. Thanks for sharing your story as your success here at LCC. And I wish you all the best as you transfer to university to continue your studies in psychology. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here. LCC Alumni Stories is recorded and produced by Steve Robinson on LCC's downtown campus. The soundtrack, Who Told You, is licensed through DeWolf Music and was performed by Ian McCanty. Thanks for listening. Learn more about what our alum have been up to at lccconnect.org. 
If you're an alum from LCC and you want to share your story with me, send me an email at steve underscore robinson at lcc.edu. Until next time, keep learning. This is LCC Connect on WLNZ 89.7 FM. Featuring the staff, faculty, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's Premier College what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College is a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship, offering graduating high school seniors who live within the Lansing School District and attend a high school within district boundaries an opportunity to attend LCC. The scholarship offers 65 credits over the course of four years from high school graduation. For more information on the Lansing Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu slash hope. To celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month, the City of Lansing will be having an event at the Alfreda Schmidt Community Center on October 7th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. That's going to be out there on Wise Road. There's going to be food, educational and historical exhibits, traditional dancing, and more. Once again, this event, a celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month, taking place October 7th. To keep up to date with this event and other events by the City of Lansing, visit the official City of Lansing Facebook page. Hi, I'm Melissa Kaplan, and I host a show called Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. It's all about the creativity in our classrooms and on campus here at LCC and the connections we have with the community. You can catch Galaxy Forum here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org. Lansing Community College's Fresh Start program forgives outstanding student balances, allowing students to re-enroll without penalty. Fresh Start does not apply to student loan creditors. Learn more at lcc.edu slash fresh start. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. You're listening to Art Happens Here, the podcast that explores the often curious and occasionally amazing art installations on, in, and around the campuses of Lansing Community College. I'm your host, Bruce Mackley. Well, today on Art Happens Here, um, I have the distinct honor and privilege of interviewing uh, an individual who has contributed heavily to the, the beautification of Lansing Community College from an artistic standpoint. Uh, this man has been doing his work for quite a while. Um, he is a craftsman. He is an artist, an artisan, um, probably an intellectual too. And we're going to find that out for sure. Um, Jim Cunningham, welcome to the show. Why, thank you, Bruce. No, this is uh, this is a treat for me, um, and it surprises me a little bit that our paths haven't crossed before now because we were doing concurrent work here on campus, yours on a much larger scale. Um, and they'd unveil these things and, you know, it was just awe inspiring some of the work that you've done here. Um, and we're probably going to have a couple conversations. Um, the first conversation I'd like to have with you is first of all, I'm going to touch on what you're about, where you're from, your training, your interests, 
and then on um, a, a specific uh, sculpture that is become uh, synonymous with Lansing Community College from a visual, from an iconic standpoint. So, um, first of all, where are you from, Jim? Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And uh, went to school in, at Purdue and in California. And uh, after some unusual sojourns internationally, came here. And uh, my formal training, actually, is as a veterinarian and as a physiologist. No kidding. And I taught veterinary and medical students at MSU for 30-some years with occasional gigs at uh, Tuskegee University and three African universities. Well, there's the intellect thing that I was touching on. I knew it. I knew it. But uh, I've also had a passion for creating sculptures as a hobby. That began when, really began when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in uh, Nigeria, and I had a chance to apprentice with a local woodcarver, Lamadi Fukai, who was nice enough to let me spend Saturday afternoons for a long time woodcarving with him. And that triggered really a passion for creating three dimensional art, which I've done since, well, for 50 years or so. For sure, yeah. And then as a family, we lived in Zimbabwe for a while, and so we apprenticed with some of the stone carvers there. They had a quite a tradition of contemporary stone carving back when they had some tourists. Mm-hmm. Life has changed a lot in southern Africa. but um, And I think the, th- the, the thing that that triggered for me was an interest in large public sculptures. They did some big pieces in stone. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to create something that would really have a public impact and have a site-specific function uh, wherever they were placed. So that sort of second apprenticeship uh, got me started with an interest in public art, bigger Mm -hmm. pieces. Mm -hmm. But as I got back to the States, I couldn't get that stone. And uh, besides moving big stones around and weigh uh-huh. a couple of tons in uh-huh. an urban setting in my uh-huh. studio wasn't going to work very well. So I went from wood carving to stone carving to creating sculptures in metal. Uh-huh. And if you think for a minute, that's a different process. If you're doing something in wood, if you're carving in wood, if you're carving in stone, like Michelangelo said, you chip away what isn't sculpture. Mm-hmm. So you subtract what you don't want. Mm-hmm. In creating metal sculptures, it's just the opposite. It's an additional thing you build up to the final project, product by adding pieces of metal, mm-hmm. which you have to cut, which you have to shape, which you have to bend, which you have to change colors if you want to, and you got to hook them all together. Right. And so I had to learn to weld. So I hung out at the local welding shop at Banish Welding up on Lake Lansing Road. I know where it is. 20 years or so, just hung out with a guy named Fred and several of their other sculptors mm-hmm. and uh, asked a lot of questions and made quite a few big sculptures up there, or the, the bigger ones that were too big for my studio. Interesting. Uh, I always made up at Banish Welding. Mm-hmm. And... I also had to figure out how to cut metal, mm-hmm. and you can do that by hand, but 
if you have a laser or a plasma cutter or a computer-driven yeah. equipment like that, it works a lot better. And uh, Alro Steel, another business in town, has that. So for the last 25 or 30 years, I've been working uh, with welding knowledge that I got from the local welders, mm -hmm. several of whom were LCC graduates. Glad to hear that. And um, cut most of the metal that I, I use with uh, first plasma cutters and now lasers. And I had to figure out how to use different kinds of metal. I started out in mild steel, but and my first big public sculpture is nearby here in an inner city park down Washington Avenue. But, you know, mild steel like your car is made from rusts. Sure, sure. So I had to figure out how to weld stainless steel and bronze mm -hmm. with some accents of kiln form glass, working with another artist and yeah, so forth. So, so it's... Um, it, this is not my formal training. This is my f rather extensive hobby. That's what I was driving at. And I have to ask very briefly, when you went back to those early pieces, at, like at Benash, were you, were you um, commissioned to do those or did you come up with them and then they were sold? Or did you provide sketches first? How was your process with getting something from your mind into an installation, a real installation? Or were they all over the place? Well, it's all over the place, but uh, first of all, I don't charge for my time. I'm a volunteer. I try to get the costs back. Mm -hmm. So each one of them is sort of an eccentric arrangement where I run into somebody or somebody wants a sculpture, and it sort of evolves yeah. from there. The first one that's down in a – there's an inner city area named Fabulous Acres that's nearby here that's on uh, – it's bordered by Washington, Mount Hope, Cedar, and Baker Street. And that was an inner city area, high crime area. Had a student that lived down there. She said, well, they'd been given a new park, they'd given a, the old parking lot to the Diamond Rio truck factory, and they were going to make a kid's park out of it. And as a joke, I said, well, my wife says there's no more room in my backyard for my sculptures, so you ought to have one of my sculptures in your park. I didn't think she'd really pay much attention, but the next uh -huh. thing I know, okay, I was asked to create a sculpture for their park, and uh, that's cool. It's a long, an interesting story involving the community police officers and yeah. so forth. But uh, yeah. it it started that way, you know. And that's just so cool that it just removing the the you know the the commerce part is fine and good and, and necessary, of course, but art for the sake of art there's something fundamentally yeah. amazing about that you know and stepping back and seeing people appreciate what you created i mean i don't think there's anything like it you know um so you are you're still going with 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 the st stainless steel are there any um technical things that you wouldn't guess that somebody would not guess with regard to working with stainless and i also know that stainless steel isn't exactly stainless either no right so no well the, the, the basic principles of welding work with almost all metals but each different 
metal material has some subtle differences in the shield gases that you use, in the feed wire that you, of course, has to have the same kind of metal. Um, I happen to use, uh, after a lot of advice from the Miller Welding Company, mm -hmm. I have a pulse MIG welder that works pretty well for stainless steel. It reduces the spatter. You have to use uh, argon with some CO2 to it. There's, there's some subtle differences mm -hmm. when you switch from stainless steel to bronze. Bronze is a wonderful metal to work with. It's exactly. basically a soft alloy of copper, and so it's pretty easy to work with. Mm -hmm. um, so each one is a little different, but basically the basic principles of welding apply to to them all. And I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm wrong a lot when it comes to the areas outside of my expertise, but the design would probably depend on the material. You could probably expect more performance and not just uh, resistance corrosion, but the actual design, how thin you can go, how high you can go with regard to certain metals versus other metals. Is that Would that be correct? Well, sure. I mean, I started out with mild steel, like our car was made of, and they rust. So I didn't want to do that. I was leaving things in the public that I wanted to think of as outlasting me. Absolutely. So I switched to stainless steel, and most artists use the alloy 316L. It has a little more chromium, a little more molybdenum, a bunch of other trace metals that reduce its corrosion mm -hmm. uh, in acid rains and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and anything you can get into Alro's CAD system, you can cut with stainless steel. So I've got sculptures that have got Arabic and Hebrew and English in the same piece, and you can read them just like it was off the printed page. I mean, the, yeah. the lasers can really do a wonderful job of cutting these these materials. Stainless is a lot harder than most metals, so cutting it is a little trickier, bending it is hard, polishing it is hard. It's a, it's a harder metal to work with, but it's a much more satisfying result. I think yeah. I remember the DeLorean and, and the issue with bending those <laughs> doors and the bodywork surrounding the, the DMC DeLorean. I know you, you have to remember because I do. You well, know. those DeLoreans didn't have any arcs to them. They were all creased. They were, yes. And it, uh, there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, you don't stamp stainless steel too much, do you? No. I mean. Well, I, I've got a big hydraulic system to bend stainless steel that Fred and I made up at Banish Welding mm -hmm. out of hydraulic stuff. And, and it it's in my garage, and so I have to have a small car so I can still get the car into the garage. Oh, this is amazing. But it works pretty well. That's very, very, that's just so <laughs> captivating. I I am familiar with the laser cutting at Alro. We, our words kiosk went there, and it's still, I walk by it, and I look at the, the cleanliness of the cuts by laser through, I think it's half inch, it's at least quarter inch thick aluminum plate. It's just, it's just remarkable. Um, so, yeah. Uh, are there any pieces that you've done that, fell outside of your area of comfort or expertise size-wise or um, with regard to complexity of design, anything like that that you actually hit a wall or you were, you were um, because I'll do this, I'll, I'll, I'll design something I can't execute and yeah, it'll sit there until I kind of figure it out. Anything like that that you could share? <laughs> 
Well, this might be a good a good time to talk about education and community. Good. In and some I, detail because there's a story, several stories, as you might expect. Sure. And uh, size has to do, had to do with Great. part of the tensions. Let me preface this uh, to our listeners. Um, this, this installation was a very big deal when it went in. Um, President Knight, uh, Dr. Brent Knight, wanted something that denoted our south border of our downtown campus, something visually um, captivating that was clearly, you knew exactly where you were um, with, with regard to Lansing Community College and, and Lansing's downtown campus. Um, and what, what was imagined was known at the time, it was known as the Red Ribbon. Um, and if you can, for those that haven't seen it, um, try to describe this beautiful artwork. It looks, it's, it's on a large pedestal, a large circular, I take it, marble fascia pedestal. And it looks like a frozen satin ribbon that's steel that is billowing in a spiral upward. And this thing is probably 20 feet tall, maybe more. The ribbon itself, uh, parts of the ribbon, I think, are around 20 inches wide, maybe, you know, ish. Yeah. And it, it, it looks like it's frozen in, like it's billowing in the wind. And it's supported by a, a chromium uh, support um, component that rises through the middle. And I'm going to let you take it from here. If you can describe the process in ideating this thing. Oh, and I did see the model. There was a, a desktop model that was provided as a visual, as a visual aid to to understand what the final would look like, and it it was pristine. It looked like a piece of art unto itself. I mean, I've seen some of these; they're kind of sort of hacked together. This looked like you took the final and just reduced it down. I mean, it was fully detailed. So, Jim Cunningham, yeah, please explain uh, education and community. Well, this is a good example of how these kinds of sculptures evolve mm -hmm. and all the work that goes into it before it appears in public. Um, like most of the, most of the art on campus, I think um, it began with an idea in Dr. Knight's head mm -hmm. uh, as he worked to beautify the campus. And I certainly applaud all the work that he's done to make this a very appealing place. Mm -hmm. Um, he had he had seen a shape on the internet, which he liked and wanted to incorporate in some sort of a sculpture, some sort of a floating ribbon concept. And through some back channels, I wound up being recruited to sort of make it happen. And so. In most, case, most cases, when you're creating a big sculpture like this, it starts with a couple of models to sort of create possible shapes and be the source of discussion. And so I created two small models, uh, which Brent and I talked about in his office on several occasions. And although we hit it off very well, it was a very pleasant experience, there was some concern about the size, the ultimate size of the sculpture. Uh, not that I wasn't interested in making something that was very big, but 
there were some practical issues involved because I wanted to make the sculpture, the, the ribbon, out of aluminum and powder coat it and clear coat it so that it looked bright and red and the way he wanted it. But the powder coating people only had a kiln that would incorporate a 12-foot piece of metal. So my model was with the presumption that it would be about 12 feet tall. Okay. And, of course, Dr. Knight had his heart set on its becoming 20 feet tall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Knight was the president, and he had the money. So, of you, as you might expect, Dr. Knight's uh, preference for a 20-foot sculpture prevailed. Oftentimes, it's, it's uh, sorry to interrupt you, it's not, it's not just the money, it's the will. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's the wherewithal and the connections to, to somehow get around and make this happen logistically, Technically, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it still astounds me. But go ahead. <laughs> well, it was it was fun, you know, two strong-willed personalities uh, working together. I said, "Gee, what about a twelve-foot sculpture?" And the next thing I know, I had an email from him with the um, someplace in Chicago that had a much bigger kiln that could do it. So it was, the clear message was it was going to be twenty feet tall, and so I redesigned it so that the ribbon came apart in seven pieces. And so each of these pieces would fit in the kiln, and it would add up to 20 feet. Actually, it's 21 point something. Um, and that limit was actually set by the ceiling at Banish Welding because their ceiling's only 22 feet tall, and we still had to work between the rafters to, to make it that tall. Of course you did. Uh, so the, that was a, a mild tension of the, the size that got sorted out yeah. that way. And uh, a ribbon can't just float in space. It's got to have something to hold it up. And so we came up with this long pipe that mm -hmm. holds it up and a system of uh, anchoring the whole thing to the ground. And because it was so, so large and it's going to be heavy enough, I had two requirements myself. I wanted a structural engineer to uh, deal with the base Absolutely. in such a way that it was safe. And I wanted a certified welder to do the welding because I wasn't as formally trained as people that come through your program. So Interesting. Um, that introduced me to a guy named Jake, who was the certified welder at Banish Welding. And uh, Jake and I have gone on to make any number of sculptures yeah. together. It's been a very pleasant kind of friendship. So um, so based on the third model, which you've seen, I think, mm -hmm. uh, that I gave to Dr. Knight as a parting set, the second model was given to Jake. Nice. And the third model got pitched, or the first model got pitched. It wasn't very, very good. Yeah. Um, and, and so through these sorts of discussions, and we, we chose a, a model that we were happy with, then I had to translate that into Alro's CAD system. So with the help of one of their programmers, why we converted all these shapes into the computer, and then the computer can make it any size we want. Mm -hmm. And we scaled it appropriately the laser was used to cut all the ribbon sections which is out of a 
an alloy is the, the alloy is fifty fifty two aluminum. It's a an alloy of aluminum that can be bent. And so all those parts got delivered to Banish Welding, and uh, Jake and I used an ancient old slip roll bender machine that has a colorful history came down from the upper peninsula in a snowstorm in the back of a truck and uh, it so probably forth. has foot pedals and giant rollers yeah, and the whole bit and yeah, keep your hands you clear pull on chains and mm-hmm. it was it's, medieval right it's still still there doesn't work very well but we we cajoled it into making that ribbon and when we scaled the ribbon up to the width you suggested initially we forgot to scale the thickness as well and so when we put it together, the the ribbon kind of wobbled around too much. So we had to strengthen the uh, elbows by adding three times as much metal so that it would be sturdy and rigid uh, right. as, you, as you see it here. But it's also an example of something I learned from the Zimbabweans. Mm-hmm. If you're going to create a public piece of art, you enrich it by giving it a title. And you enrich it further by giving it a site-specific function. And uh, so in this case, you know, not only because I was for 30-some years working in higher education at universities, but my wife's an ICU nurse with an LCC background, and Jake has an LCC welding background, and I have a you know, I've enjoyed the jazz programs from this radio station for a long time. Outstanding. And, uh, it's, 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 so I have a very healthy respect for the important functions of LCC in our community. And so I gave it the title, Education and Community. And the way I see that working is that the silver pole, the stainless steel pole that holds the ribbon up is the education provided by LCC. And the ribbon is the community. And as community members of the community grow and, uh, you know, enhance their own lives, they interact intermittently with LCC. That's beautiful. It comes back and forth to the stainless steel. Yeah. Pole, and uh, so that's the education and community. That's the symbolism involved, and I, I just enjoy as a as a hobby creating abstract sculpture. I just enjoy staring out the window and sipping coffee and yeah. thinking about shapes, and then sim- thinking about the symbolism and if it can be site specific and serve a purpose that's um, sort of a placemaking purpose so much the better so so much the better yeah. through my interactions with uh, brent knight with my feelings about the community uh, college with it, it's just been a very nice experience and i'm happy with the way that this particular sculpture turned out that's wonderful. One, one other tension that uh, brent and i had was that uh, uh, i discovered he had his heart set on the stainless steel being a mirror finish said, Brent, I don't do mirror finish. And he said, well, okay, we're going to put it on a semi and we're going to take it to Mount Pleasant. And that we're sounds give like it Dr. Knight. That's a place that Brent polishes Knight. milk mm-hmm. trucks. Yep. And so off it went and it came back 
with near finish. It is beautiful. And it looks good. <laughs> because the, 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 just to describe this thing again briefly, the, 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 the pole, I think, is, uh, looks like it's four inches or three inches in diameter. diameter. Six. It, so, well, there you go, because I'm standing back from it. Yeah. Um, and it's chromium, and it reflects aspects of the ribbon in a vertical fashion that it's extremely visually engaging. One of those things, one of those outcomes, I don't think that you could have predicted. It just adds another dimension to that, to the piece. And uh, there's, when you look at it, there's something familiar. You, you call it abstract, but it's it's very relatable. The the shape, it it to me, for me, everyone interprets differently, but it represents a silk scarf, right? And I included first thing I wanted to do. We did a montage commercial. We used a red camera, high production. I wanted a rolling picture and I have it on file below taken from below this thing with the sun beaming through it. And, uh, one of our very talented videographers got this and captured it through that sculpture. And it just, to me, it's just jaw dropping. I mean, it's just one of the best, it kicks off the commercial. It's like the front end and just grabs you visually. Yeah. Those are the most interesting pictures I've seen of it are straight up right through the ribbon. Yeah. With the sky, um, I remember the day they unveiled it. It was raining. Um, we meant to, I believe, there was a media blitz around this because it was part of the uh, the arts and sciences renovation, in t- sort of in tandem with it because it resides just outside of our arts and sciences building there in Shiawassee. And it was raining, so we couldn't do a proper unveiling as with, you know, like a big drop, the cloth drops and everything. It was raining. And the mayor came in and, and very many people uh, were there and uh, it was quite an event even in the rain I mean it's like fire engine rut it just stands off and you can see it you can be blocks away down um, Washington you know Avenue and there it is there, that's LCC there it is you know um, wow and I, that's more than I ever realized about that particular sculpture and, and uh, thank you for sharing that is there anything more about that work now I remember we, there was concern about people climbing on it. And and this has been like an issue with me with certain projects that I've been involved in too, is just uh, that, you know, and a little bit of anxiety surrounding it. I know our campus is heavily surveilled and we have, uh, we're very safe, a very safe campus, beautiful, obviously. Um, did that ever come into discussion? Safety issues, wind maybe? Um, you, had, you said you had a structural engineer come in um, I'm sure it flexes in the wind if there's a high wind. Well, we reinforced the ribbon in such a way that it didn't move in substantial wind. Mm-hmm. Um, the structural engineer redesigned the base of it so that it's... It's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. Well, yeah. You don't see that. It's mm-hmm. below that bottom plate, mm-hmm. but... Mm-hmm. what's below the bottom plate is most of the weight mm. and it's well anchored to a cement footing footing mm-hmm. and then that's surrounded by some polished granite black granite but right. um, so I think from a structural point of view it's not going to fall over on anybody and if you put a lot of people on it it wouldn't budget it would really scuff up the paint job on now to be the, clear to our this is not a challenge this no, is no, not a no, challenge no. We, it's it's been there's always a discussion of safety with public art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's always, yeah. It it, it that the the um, my first public piece 
as I, that I mentioned, it goes to an inner city park in Lansing. Mm -hmm. It's called Community. It has five abstract shapes, one black, one white, one red, one yellow, one bronze, symbolizing the ethnic groups in that. It's on your portfolio very, site. Very diverse community, mm -hmm. wonderful area. And the parks people said, it's got to be taller. The kids are going to climb on it. Mm -hmm. Make it taller, make it taller. So I made it 13 feet, four inches tall. It dawned on me after I had it at 13 feet, four inches tall that that was a delivery problem because there were bridges between where it was in my driveway and where it was headed, and the clearance was 14.2. So I needed a 10-inch truck. Wow. And, uh, and we solved that problem because... Uh, the local contractor loaned us the uh, forklift, and we bolted it to the forklift. And when we came to the bridges, why we just lowered it down on the ground. And the but we sighted it in that location. It's called Barb Dean's Top Lot, first park named for an African American uh, woman, and uh, we sighted it so Barb Dean could see it from her living room easy chair how cool is that and that's yeah that's nobody legit. messes with barb dean i'm here to tell you that i, I have to look this up and, and uh, it's still there and uh, it, i don't think kids ever got up on it the kids and i went and repainted it a while back but and the the, the kids play toys have been trashed occasionally but mm -hmm. Barb Dean kept that thing safe. So How about that? You don't have Barb Dean, but you have the surveillance cameras and a few other yeah. things. So I, I think the public generally keeps these things good as, safe. As, but you do have to make it strong enough, assuming that some somebody's going to get up on it at times. Well, there is uh, to be truthful. There is an ownership thing with community, and they own the artwork, and they do tend to take care of it. And the uh, the uh, improvisational spirit of creating these things and, and developing, not just developing the art, but like you said, the wherewithal to, to deliver and to install and ingenuity is, uh, is always remarkable too. Well, I got to say, well, let's wind up this discussion on this particular sculpture, sir, Jim Cunningham. Is there anything um, I've left out about uh, education and community that you want to mention before we wrap it up? Well, I think we've given the public a sense of where it came from and uh -huh. how you create these things and mm -hmm. the personal interactions and the players involved and right well i gotta tell you i will not walk by it without thinking of this conversation from here on out i mean it just adds such depth and knowledge to uh the origin of this beautiful piece of art sir thank you for uh, for joining us on art happens here thank you Audrey Hepburn once said, nothing is impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible. If you want to check out what I've been talking about, just visit this episode at lccconnect.org. Art Happens Here is a production of LCC Connect. Thanks for lending us your imagination. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ Studio, located on LCC's downtown campus.
Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.